Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm trying to uh, improve our internet connectivity here, but uh, it doesn't seem to be cooperating. I don't know. Saturday morning, I guess. Hard to really know what's going on. Had pretty good success each day this week. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Thus it is for frustration. Give me, give me a few minutes here. Let's see if we can't improve our connection quality by some other means. I'm trying to think what else I could try doing. Okay, well, let's, let's begin, and then, uh, eh, God willing, there'll be something usable by you. If anything, again, watch it later on replay um, or the recording later in the day. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we say our memory verse one more time for this week, which is there, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1. Our psalm for this week is Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple, when I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Um, actually, on the psalm, let's talk about the psalm a little bit. Um, psalm 116 is split into two psalms in the Greek uh, Old Testament. Uh, here it's combined as, as one psalm. 
So it's Psalm 114 and 115 put together um, in the Greek. I'd like to share to you, or share with you, I should say, a devotion from Patrick Henry Reardon um, on these psalms, and I think it's helpful, especially after we've been praying the psalm all week. It is instructive to compare the symmetric openings of these two psalms, for each begins with a simple verb in the aorist tense, active voice, first person singular. Thus, Psalm 114 commences, I have loved, you see that here, I have loved Agapasa. And Psalm 115 begins, I have believed, you see that here in verse 10. Um, We should also observe that the verb in each case is without direct object. This lack of direct objects followed with what are normally transitive verbs gives them hear what we call a more general tone, not specified by particular objects, but the loving and believing spoken of in these psalms rather point rather to the abiding intention of soul. The voice in both these psalms is that of Christ our Lord. It is he who says, I have loved, right? And, and I have believed. Loving and believing, that is, are not simply religious requirements laid on the Christian conscience. They are, first of all, characteristics modeled in Christ the Lord. All love and all belief begin in Jesus. Any loving and any believing that we, that we others may accomplish, excuse me, that others, I think there's a typo here, any loving or, and any believing that uh, we may accomplish is an inner participation in his loving and his believing, for his loving and his believing form the font of our salvation. When in Hebrew, Psalm 116, first half, A, Jesus says, I have loved, the rest of the psalm shows that its special setting is the mystery of his suffering and death endured for the sake of our salvation in loving obedience. Firstly, Jesus did all these things because of his love for the Father, but that the world may know that I love the Father and that the Father gave me this commandment, so I do, John 14, 31. Secondly, Jesus did all these things because he loved us. Thus, St. Paul refers to our Lord simply as him who loved us, Romans 8, 37. And because he loved us, Jesus gave himself up to death on the cross. The life which I now live in the flesh, wrote St. Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. This self-offering of Jesus was the supreme proof of his love for us. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, Ephesians 5, verse 2. So in this psalm, which is especially concerned with the mystery of his sufferings, Jesus our Lord begins his prayer, I have loved. The Savior goes on to speak of the supplication that he offered in the context of his sufferings, beseeching God that if possible the cup might be taken away. The sorrows of death encompassed me, the hazards of Hades found me out. Affliction have I found in sorrow, and I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, deliver my soul. You see all that right here in verse 3. Then, abruptly and dramatically, the tone of the prayer changes to a hope nearly realized, as though his suffering supplication has been answered already. Merciful Lord, right here, verse 5 and following. Merciful Lord and righteous, and God has mercy on us. The Lord stands guard over infants. I was humbled, and he saved me. Return my soul to your rest, for the Lord has been good to you. For he delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Well-pleasing will I be in the sight of the Lord in the land of the living. This and so many other psalms testify that the Lord's passion was a sustained act of worship. This interpretation of his death 
was perfectly obvious to the early Christians, who said of Christ that he offered up himself, and who spoke of the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and who described his self-oblation as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the language of the temple and of sacrificial worship, and we are probably so accustomed to hearing it that we have lost all sense of how terribly strange and improbable it must have sounded. When the Christians first began to speak this way of the unjust death inflicted on the just man, this event outsiders would have considered as, at best, a great tragedy. But for the Christian mind, the death of Jesus was not a mere miscarriage of human justice. It was the supreme act of worship that endowed all mankind with God's justice. It was the single deed of such condign and consummate devotion as to render possible human, humanity's access to God for all time and into eternity. All right, so that's the first half of the psalm. Um, but we can talk, actually, we can talk a little bit about the second half of the psalm too, I think. Let's do that. Just give me one second. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't matter what platform you're on, Don, whether you're Facebook or YouTube, it's going to look terrible. <laughs> There's just no way around it. I'm sorry. Um, it is what it is, as they say. Um, so here's the second half. The Gospels of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 20 and following, and Mark, chapter 10, verse 35, record the occasion on which James and John, the sons, the two sons of Zebedee, approached the Lord requesting that they be given seats at his right and left hands on the day of his enthronement. Their request is ironical in the extreme, for Jesus had just that minute foretold in vivid detail the suffering and death awaiting him at Jerusalem. Not a single word stands between his pronouncement and the request. Preoccupied with their own selfish interests, the two brothers obviously had not been paying attention to the Lord's message of the cross. By way of response to their inappropriate request, Jesus then puts further question to them. Quote, Can you drink the cup of which I am to drink? The cup to which he refers is, of course, the cup of his own suffering and death, the cup of which he latter prays, remove this cup from me. It is the very chalice of his coming passion and death. This is the cup that the two brothers must be prepared to drink. From another perspective, it is the cup of Holy Communion. That the cup of which Jesus says, Take this, all of you, and drink of it, for this is the cup of my blood. This cup contains the very price poured forth from for our salvation, because the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the participation of, or the communion in the blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. This is the cup that gives shape and contour to the life-giving blood that paid for our redemption. The drinking of this cup of salvation is in itself a proclamation of the mystery of the cross. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Thus, all right, so this is a roundabout way of getting to it. Um, thus, in the question that the Lord puts to the two sons of Zebedee, can I drink the cup of which I am to drink, he establishes the essential relationship between our reception of the Holy Communion and our dedication to follow him along the way to the cross. The question points at once to his gift and our duty, for the Eucharist means the, the two things inseparably, 
Like the mystery of the cross itself, drinking the cup involves both God's grace and man's commitment. Early Christian writers, when they came to comment on this theme in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, rather often had recourse to the second half of Psalm 116. All right, so here we go. <laughs> uh, and that's how we use it too. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will find my commitment or fulfill my commitment to the Lord now in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. All right, so now remember, we use the second half of this psalm um, in the context of divine service um, right now in, this, in the offertory, which comes right before the reception of the Lord's Supper. So listen to this. This cup of salvation wrote origin in the third century is the cup of martyrdom, the Christian's supreme identification with the death of the Lord. This is the cup of which the venerable Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, had prayed from his pyre of martyrdom nearly a century earlier. Quote, I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour, that I might receive a portion amongst the number of martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. The identical interpretation of the psalm is found all through the patristic and medieval writers of East and West. Athanasius, Basil, Didymus the Blind, Theodoret of Seir, John Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine, Cassiodorus, uh, Hymo of Halberstadt, Gerard of Cunard, Thomas of Cobham, and so forth, as well as several liturgical texts. For the tradition of the Church, quote, the cup of salvation in Psalm 115, 116b, refers to the Holy Supper in its fullness, the wide dimension of which include at once the grace of God, all his benefits to me, the cup of blessing, and call upon the name of the Lord, the baptismal vows, I will fulfill my commitment to the Lord, and the gathering of the church, now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, the vocation of martyrdom, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. This psalm is prayed from within the very heart of the Christian mystery. According to Matthew 26.30, Jesus and the disciples sang hymns at the end of the Last Supper. Since this latter was a Passover Seder, Luke 22, we know that they were singing involved the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 112 through 117, or 113 to 118 if you prefer from Hebrew, prescribed for that liturgical context, including, of course, the lines here under consideration. Right? Thus, in the very setting of the institution of the Holy Eucharist, just before he went forth to the Garden of Gethsemane to accept the cup from the hand of his father, Jesus stood with James, John, and the other disciples singing, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my commitment to the Lord now in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So in that uh, meditation on the second half of the psalm, you'll note how um, Father Reardon actually does what we call inductive method, where he and begins with kind of the end, you know, the Lord's Supper, and then leads us to understand how this psalm is confessing us, uh, is actually giving us a confession of what we receive in the Supper and who we are, all right? And then the unanimous uh, history of the church in its use of this psalm in the context of the Lord's Supper, which we do in service one and two. So there you go. All right, our epistle tomorrow is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, 
that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So tomorrow is the Sunday of Christian prayer, and so it is fitting for us to have this uh, reading, which is used in uh, the Table of Duties. Uh, we just were praying it all week, actually. We will here in a minute, or not this week. We prayed it last week uh, of citizens to pray for those who are in authority, right? So it's quoted there. Um, but it has to do, obviously, with prayer and what is prayer. Luther has a wonderful introduction and refers to this text in the large catechism um, on the third part, the Lord's Prayer. Listen to what he has to say here about prayer. We have heard what we are to do and to believe. That would be the commandments in the creed. The best and most blessed life consists of these things. Now follows the third part, how we are to pray. Mankind is in such a situation that no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, even though he has begun to believe. Besides, the devil, along with the world and our flesh, resists our efforts with all his power. Consequently, nothing is so necessary as to call upon God incessantly and drum into his ears our prayer, that he may give, preserve, and increase in us faith and obedience to the Ten Commandments and remove all that stands in our way and hinders us from fulfilling them. That we may know what and how to pray, our Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us both the way and the words, as we shall see. But before we explain the Lord's Prayer part by part, it's necessary to exhort and draw people to prayer as Christ and the apostles also did. The first thing to know is this. It is our duty to pray because God has commanded it. We are told in the second commandment, you shall not take the name, God's name in vain. Thereby we are required to praise the holy name and pray or call upon it in every need. For to call upon it is nothing else to pray. Prayer, therefore, is as strictly and solemnly commanded as all other commandments, such as having no other God, not killing, not stealing, etc. Let no one think that it makes no difference whether I pray or not, as vulgar people do who say in their delusion, Why should I pray? Who knows whether God heeds my prayer or cares to hear it? If I do not pray, someone else will. Thus they fall into the habit of never praying, alleging that since we reject false and hypocritical prayers, we teach that there is no duty or need to pray. It's quite true that the kind of babbling and bellowing that used to pass for prayers in the church was not really prayer. Such external repetition, when properly used, may serve for the exercise of young children, pupils, and simple folk. While it may be called singing or reading exercise, it is not really prayer. To pray, as the second commandment teaches, is to call upon God in every need. This God requires of us. He has not left it to our choice. It is our duty and obligation to pray if we want to be Christians just as it is our duty and obligation to obey our fathers and mothers and civil authorities. By invocation and prayer, the name of God is glorified and used to good purpose. This you should note above all, above all, so that you may silence and repel any thoughts that would prevent or deter us from praying. All right. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. He's still telling us about not deterring. Okay, this is the first and most important point, that all our prayers must be based on the obedience of God, on obedience to God, regardless of our person, whether we be sinners or saints, worthy or unworthy. In the second place, we should be all the more urged and encouraged to pray because God has promised that our prayer will surely be answered, as he says in Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And Christ says in Matthew 7, 
ask and it will be given to you, etc. And for everyone who asks, receives. Such promises certainly ought to awaken and kindle in our hearts a desire and love to pray. For by his word, God testifies that our prayer is heartily pleasing to him and will assuredly be heard and granted so that we may not despise or disdain it or pray uncertainly. Uncertainly, yeah. This you can hold up to him and say, I come to thee, dear Father, and pray not of my own accord or because of my own worthiness, but at thy commandment and promise, which cannot fail or deceive me. Whoever does not believe this promise should realize once again that he angers God, grossly dishonoring him and accusing him of falsehood. Furthermore, we should be encouraged and drawn to pray because in addition to this commandment and promise, God takes the initiative and puts it into our mouths, the very words we are to use. Thus we see how sincerely he is concerned over our needs, and we shall never doubt that our prayer pleases him and will assuredly be heard. So this prayer is far superior to all others, the Lord's Prayer, etc. All right, so he keeps going on. So that's from the large catechism, the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. It's really worth going and reading that whole section um, to understand why we pray um, and what's the benefit of prayer. Okay. And now our uh, Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from Numbers chapter 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will, uh, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, that when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. All right. So, um, this text, I think it would be interesting to see, um, actually, it's New Testament interpretation, right? And uh, those of you who are with us for our Bible study on the book of the Gospel according to St. John know that's in John 3, verse 14. Uh, John three sixteen is quite famous, but just a couple of verses before, um, St. John writes, hold on, get it in front of me, as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? So this text from Numbers um, is given, well, it's explicitly taught by Jesus as a confession of his suffering and death upon the cross. So um, here's what Luther has to say about that. Let us note and remember this text well. For the Lord Christ was truly the best of preachers, excelling even the other apostles. Therefore it behooves us to listen attentively to his words. These words are familiar. They are often treated in sermons. One finds them painted on many walls, and they have been stamped on coins. Uh, Although, that's what Luther says, and nobody's been able to find any such coins. All right. Would to God that these words were also stamped and inscribed on our hearts. They deserve to be sealed on our hearts. Thus the bride exclaims in Song of Songs, 
set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. These sublime words of our text are the greatest article of our Christian doctrine. All the world hears these words, but only a few accept them and engrave them on their hearts. The world grows hostile to this article and finds it intolerable. Of course, the Turk also thinks highly of Christ and conceives that he was a great prophet and that he was born of the Virgin Mary and that his mother was not conceived in original sin. However, he does not confess, the Turk doesn't, that Christ is his God and, and Lord and places his Muhammad above Christ or at least alongside him. And the Turk is at the same time reputed to be very pious. He leads an abstemious life and he devises his own way to heaven. And you know what the Pope thinks about this text. We'll, we'll skip that. Uh, the Pope doesn't like it either. This article of faith, namely, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This article of faith that Christ is our Lord is what makes us Christians. It is the jewel, the gem, and the golden chain around the neck of the bride who believes that Christ is true God from eternity and that he descended from heaven and became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and that he and no other ascended again into heaven. Thus he was declared the Son of God, Romans 1.4, and he sits at the right hand of his heavenly Father. This is most certainly true, all appearances to the contrary notwithstanding. For if Christ were not seated at the right hand of the Father, this article of faith would never have come down to us. Nor would it have been possible for this article to maintain itself against the constant opposition of so many kings and tyrants of the world. Um, all right, let's skip ahead a little bit to where he actually talks about the numbers text. This is Luther. He sees opportunity to kind of rant a little bit about the Turk and the Pope, as he is wont to do. All right, but now let us mediate or meditate on this story. There, that sounds like a good place to jump in. <laughs> the Lord delivers an excellent sermon to Nicodemus, a Jew, who supposed that keeping the law of Moses offered him a way to heaven and that his own ascension into heaven depended on his fasting, his prayer, and his ascetic life. Now Christ interprets and unravels Moses to him correctly and says to him, quote, That you will never do. Your mode of ascension is not the way, but you must be born anew. Therefore, listen to what I tell you. You are a Jew. I shall take your Moses and cite from him passages which you have not understood until now. Who else would have interpreted Moses in this way before? He says, In Numbers 21, you read that the Lord your God sent fiery serpents among the children of Israel when they murmured because the Lord did not do what they wanted him to do. In the, con in the country where the heat is so intense, such serpents are called asps. The, the venom of asps, right? When they bite a man, he swells, turns red, and his whole body becomes so feverish that he is soon past help unless the bitten member is amputated at once. For if such a serpent bites into the finger or the foot, that limb must be amputated immediately, otherwise the fire or fever will penetrate the whole body and affect all its parts, and death will be inevitable. All right, this is 500 years ago. Look, they understand poison quite well. All right. In his song in Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings of the incurable venom of asps. They are called fiery serpents because they inflame the body with their sting so that the affected member must be cut off at once or death will result. These serpents were not actually fiery, but when they bit a man, his flesh grew so feverishly red, or fiery red and feverish, that he died of thirst. This thirst suggested the name dupsadas to the Greeks, for the heat induces thirst, etc., etc., etc. But these serpents God punished, by these serpents I should say, God punished the Israelites with sudden death in the wilderness because of their murmuring and disobedience. 
Now when the people sought everywhere for relief from this plague, Moses interceded for them before the Lord God, asking him to mitigate the penalty. Then God said, Erect a seraph. This is the word he uses here. It means a house which is aflame, for the seraphim are fiery angels. Thus he says, Lift up a fiery serpent, so that whoever looks on it or at it will not die. Then Moses molded a serpent, pattering it after those fiery serpents, and set it on a pole. Here's the key. Ready? This serpent had God's word and promise that anyone bitten by the serpents would go unscathed if he looked at the bronze serpent. That was indeed a great miracle, that such a severe wound would find such a simple cure. The people were to do no more than believe the word of Moses. The term which the Lord employs here for this believing is to look at. This was a queer remedy, and I suppose it it must have impressed the Jews as very strange and odd. But an emergency knows no law, as the saying goes. That's probably a German maxim. Yeah, need breaks iron. Need breaks iron. Their great emergency must have prompted them to believe, particularly when they saw that it was beginning to work a cure. Yet it is surprising that the human heart could believe the words of Moses, for the people had experienced the deadliness of the venom of these fiery serpents. They might well have thought, ha, what a ridiculous medicine it is that you propose for the sting and bite of the serpents. Moses, have you lost your senses? How are we to be helped by looking at this bronze serpent, which looks like those that bit us? We are so terrified that we cannot stand the sight of them. If only you would instead give us a drink, a cooling plaster, a cooling drink to take away the venom and the fever. What good can mere words and looking do? How can that dead and lifeless object up there benefit us? Very likely, it was not the only emergency that did it, but also the faith. Their faith. I am sure that many scorned to accept the remedy and died in unbelief. They would not have been persuaded and said, Ha, how are we to be helped by looking at the serpent? Probably none of but the believers looked at the serpent. The others very likely turned away from it, saying, Why do you make sport of me by asking me to look at the serpent? How could it help? But it was not the act of looking at the serpent that cured. It was the words, the faith in the words. In all probability, those who believed and declared, Behold, Moses is the servant of God. God commanded him to do this, therefore it must be healing. Just looking at the serpent did not affect the cure. It was the faith in the word that did it. These people accepted the word of God as a reliable promise of healing and delivered from the poison. In this story, many were undoubtedly offended because it was all so unpretentious. None of the believers understood Moses' word and recovered through their faith in the word. But who would have had the boldness to refer this story to Christ? I would have never ventured to interpret the story as Christ himself did when he plainly related it to himself, saying, This is the bronze serpent. I, however, am the son of man. Those people who are asked to look at the serpent physically, but you must look at me spiritually and in faith. Those people were cured of bodily poisoning, but you, through me, will be delivered from eternal poison. They recovered from physical ailment, but I bestow eternal life on those who believe in me. These are very strange statements and sayings. In this way, the Lord shows us the proper method of interpreting Moses and all the prophets. He teaches us that Moses points and refers to Christ in all his stories and illustrations. His purpose is to show that Christ is the point and center of a circle, with all eyes inside the circle focused on him. Whoever turns his eyes on him finds his proper place in the circle of which Christ is at the center. All the stories of Holy Writ, if viewed aright, point to Christ.
All right, and then he goes on. But what a lovely, um, two, two really lovely points in there, essential points, really. It's not the looking upon the serpent that saves them, but it's the word attached to that action, right? So it's the word of promise that saves them, which is, of course, leading them to faith. And then the second thing, of course, is that all Scripture testifies of Christ, which he himself says, right? But uh, as Lu- I mean, even Luther, who is a brilliant Bible scholar, says, I would have never thought <laughs> that the serpent on the pole in Numbers 21 was a confession of Christ um, crucified for the forgiveness of sins. But that's precisely what it is. And Jesus himself testifies to that. All right, so um, sometimes we're... <laughs> As, as, as Lutherans, well, I would say as faithful Christians in general, um, accused of playing fast and loose with the Old Testament, especially as we see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. Every time three days is mentioned, or water is baptism, or um, I'm trying to think of some other examples, you know, the, the Son of Man going forth into war, leading the host in triumph. It's like, no, that's a picture of Christ too. Maybe it was Jesus himself pre-incarnate as well. All right. Um, because that's how Jesus himself interprets the Bible, as John 3, verse 14 shows in interpreting Numbers 21. All right, very good. Let's confess our catechism for this week to parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. This is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. All right, one second here. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us the gift of children who are to be brought up in the training and instruction of the gospel of your Son. Give to all Christian fathers and mothers the strength and will to teach the Word of God to their children and to see this responsibility as their most important duty. Deliver them from the temptation to abandon the sacred trust. Grant them faithfulness in their calling as parents that they might love and care for their children even as you love and care for them in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, Grant your grace in Christ to all Christian children that they might honor their parents in spite of their failings and enjoy a long and blessed life according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. On this Saturday, we pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray this day in Thanksgiving with Jolene, who celebrates her baptism, as well Arthur, who received the gift of baptism last week, with our friends at Emmanuel Adel and St. Paul Falls, that they rejoice, as they rejoice in the gift of new pastors, with Aaron and the gift of healing. We also pray for Tristan, Marcella, Jeremy, Kelsey, Amanda, Roy, John, and Timothy. Janice, Sandy, Linda, Ken, Penny, and Blair, all who are in need of the gift of the Lord's healing touch. Pray for our homebound, Bev, David, Willis, and Janice, and Mickey, that they be comforted and relieved in their isolation by the presence of the Lord in his word. We pray for our mission of the month, Lutherans for Life, as well as Sheboygan County Hispanic Outreach. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray. 
O God, you make the minds of your faithful to be of one will. Grant that we may love what you have commanded and desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world our hearts may be fixed, where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body, and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we sing our hymn for this week. At the Lamb's High Feast we sing. concludes our congregation of prayer for today saturday may 8th 2021 good to have you with us apologies for the video quality um it appears what happened is uh it's streaming out over our backup cellular connection not over our main connection so um so it goes uh i'm surprised it actually worked as well as it did over the cellular connection so um i'll check have to do a little troubleshooting see what happened there and try to prevent that from happening in the future All right, Lord be with you all. Keep you safe. We'll see you in the morning, 9.30 a.m. for our divine service. Join us then.